You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I have got probably uh, the the most requested guest we've ever had on. He's not going to believe that, but I have the closest thing that Strong Towns has to a renaissance man, Ian Rasmussen, on the phone with me from New York. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. I am absolutely flattered, and I don't believe you for reasons of uh, lacking notoriety in the urban planning world alone, <laughs> but it, it was a most gracious welcome. You have a cult following, I think is what it is. I would love to go to sleep each night thinking I had a cult <laughs> following. Uh, well, the last time you and I chatted on the podcast was from your place in Forest Hills. And you are no longer living in this beautiful little place in Forest Hills. You are living somewhere else. And I want to take our audience on that journey because the things we're talking about this week on the blog, you lived this. You actually tried to finance some mixed-use development and it didn't go so well. So talk about the first move you tried to make out of Forest Hills. Okay. So uh, to say it didn't go so well is uh, is a, a very a very polite way of putting it. And <laughs> it's so, a Minnesota way of saying it. <laughs> uh, the, the story that follows, and this is actually the first time I, I'm telling it in full, uh, the, the, the story that follows is an extremely painful one that involves things not working out the way I planned, losing a lot of money, and... I have since moved to a new a new place that I'm very happy in, but I, I think it would be sort of, sort of misguided to say that this story has a happy ending. Nonetheless, I think it's very illustrative of sort of what can happen to those who try and take on a well-established mortgage system and try and do something differently. And so uh, with that, I will begin the cathartic retelling <laughs> of this long and tawdry tale. Oh, please do. Okay. Um, my wife and I were looking to buy our our first home. At that time, we actually owned our apartment already, um, but we're looking for something to grow into. Um, my daughter was, I think, about six months old at the time. And my wife and I have been city dwellers for about the last uh, decade or so. And so if we were going to move into a smaller town outside the city, uh, which was mostly motivated by quality of school systems and affordability. I don't, I don't know how much listeners yeah, no. know about. I mean, if you live in New York City, you can't actually buy a single family home, whether or not it's detached or, you know, a row house. You can't buy something like that for less than a million dollars in any neighborhood. So we were going to we we're going to move outside the city, only we never had this dream of the backyard and the barbecue and the driveway, uh, you know, the, the prototypical Levittown, which is Levittown itself being only a few miles from where I grew up. I had no desire to go back to that. Instead, what we were looking for was something that provided urban living, which I would define as centered around walking and biking to all of your daily needs, having access to transit, and then only driving when you absolutely have to. We were looking for that experience at the scale of a town. And in addition to that, uh, my wife being 
you know, very economically savvy, had figured that we should get a, a property that had some kind of a rental income. And so we were actually inclined to find a building where it would either have uh, some kind of a commercial use or it would have more than one residential unit. And in the beginning, we would occupy, say, half the building and then in time make a decision about growing into the rest of the building. The standard type of mixed-use building that for hundreds of years, thousands of years, people around the world have used, right? Yeah, and it's it's so funny because you think about, you know, so many American downtowns in in varying degrees of health from from the from the lively to the deserted there is a sense in which i think many people don't actually want to live downtown but what i was bargaining for was um having to either park on the street or in a parking lot that i did not control a block from my house and i would not have had a backyard and i would have had an obligation to shovel a sidewalk in front of my tenants doors but that was fine with me. Like I said, I, I was never in the market for the for the backyard and the barbecue. And uh, incidentally, not to not to spoil the end of the story here, but I I ended up in a single family home, but my home is on a corner, and I still have no backyard. <laughs> right. So it, it happened to be totally by chance that in the beginning of 2014, my wife and I were at the dinner party of a very close friend, known to many of your listeners. I think his name is Patty Steinschneider. He lives in the charming uh, Westchester, Hudson Valley village of Dobbs Ferry, New York. And so, you know, like so many other people lying in bed by the twilight of an iPad searching around Zillow, we found a building. It was basically a ground floor store, a couple of apartments upstairs, and very reasonably priced by our measure. And so we'd gone to see this building actually had been turned on to a second building that was a little larger, but had some potential uh, for, for having more, more units in it and eventually make an offer on this building. Like, like I was saying to you before we started, I, I've written down a bunch of the different milestones in this process and a lot of the different um, numbers as far as like our income and how much the building was going to cost. And then, you know, in, in an effort to sort of anonymize the data, I've multiplied them out into even numbers that are not exactly, not exactly what's in play. But. Right. Give us a sense of what we're talking about proportionally for things. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I respect that. Can you describe like the neighborhood that this building would have been in? Um, the address was on Main Street, and this was a Main Street in the best way possible. Uh, restaurants, bars, shops, Residential stuff upstairs, plenty of convenience retail, which I mentioned because it indicates that there were actually people living in the downtown. So uh, by comparison to some other towns, sometimes you'll be downtown and it'll almost in effect feel like the town has substituted, uh, you know, a mall for an actual downtown. Um, this this wasn't that. There wasn't there wasn't like a J Crew or a Banana Republic on the corner. This was you know, restaurants, delis, convenience stores, realtors, things like that. Were there tenants in the building you were you were looking to buy? Uh, there were, and I'll, I'll I'll go into that when I, oh, when okay. I describe things. Yep. You know what? You know, maybe before we kick off with talking about this specific building and this specific story, I'll just say this: a lot of the mistakes that you're going to hear that I made, or other sort of problems I encountered along the way, are my are, are my problem, and that's because. You know, I was, in essence, a rookie at doing this. I think others that I'll mention to you will seem sort of 
unreasonable on the part of banks and lending institutions, although I bet maybe attributing too much of an intent to a system that seems to mindlessly function. <laughs> right. Um, right. All right. So with that, I'll just give you a quick description of the building in question. Go for it. It's about, uh, about 35 or 40 feet wide. It had two retail stores on the ground floor with an entrance in the middle accessing apartments above. One of the retail stores was occupied by a not-for-profit local group. And the other one was vacant because the owner of the building had previously operated a business out of that spot, but had closed it up in preparation for selling the building. The owner lived in a second-floor apartment that I think would best be described as two to three bedrooms, depending on how big you need a bedroom to be. The third floor and fourth floor, which was under a pitched roof, were a duplex apartment of four or five bedrooms that was occupied by probably about eight college students, which was completely hilarious because on the the day we did our walkthrough, it was about three in the afternoon, and about half of them were still asleep. (laughs) Right. It's really funny. Okay. (laughs) So the plan is basically to purchase the building using what's called a 203K mortgage And that provides both the money to purchase the building in addition to a budget for renovations. And um, the way you get that loan is to present basically a picture of the building before you renovate that justifies the purchase price at the time. And then a, a rent roll for the prospective value of the building after the renovations are done that justify the purchase price in addition to the renovation costs. Sure. Okay, that makes sense so far. Yep, no, I'm following you. Okay, so some rough numbers. We'll just assume that at the time I'm making $100,000 a year. Okay. And if that's true, my wife makes about $70,000 a year. Okay. For a combined one seventy. The building would have been 300000 Sure. So... Um, at the time that our offer was accepted, we put down a deposit of um, 5% or $15,000, leaving a $285,000 mortgage. And that was for a, a family with an annual income of one seventy. So and we'll just punch that in. Yeah, you're looking at 1.67. So one and two-thirds is uh, debt to income. In a world where, you know, I don't want to trust the internet or affordability calculators too much, I think they generally suggest something on the order of uh, a three times multiplier of household income to home price. Right. No, you, you'd be comfortably in what would be an affordable range at that point. Right. Yeah. But in addition to which, this is where, I mean, when I replay these facts and figures in my mind, I, just, I can't actually, in some ways, I can't understand why it didn't work out. All right, so we're asking for a mortgage for about 1.67 times our household income, but the building had a rent roll and had established tenants. So here's where it gets really strange. So you're you're looking to make a mortgage, but you've also got income on this property. It's not just the income that you would bring home from your salary. It's actual income from your salary plus rental income, right? Right. So... I mean, I did some rough math here, and it looks like at the time, the income for the entire building, if I, ha- if I had not lived in it, would have been about $2,800 a month. 
<laughs> well, there's your mortgage right there, right? That's almost exactly the mortgage plus the taxes. And um, the taxes in Westchester County, by the way, are the highest in the nation by by a long shot. That's a story for another day. The schools also happen to be wonderful. So, But the point is that the, the building empty essentially was the mortgage plus the taxes equals the income. So you just sort of hold it. There was no cost to, to ownership. I was going to live in one of the two units. You know, that probably would have rendered the out-of-pocket cost to me somewhere on the order of $1,000 a month. Right. Which, you know, with your 170000 is not a big deal. No. Right. I, I mean, I would I, I would argue that if the next time you meet somebody who makes $170,000 a year and has $1,000 a month rent, you know, they're, they're probably, they're doing fine. Right. Right. Yeah. So it was also um, a part of our plans when we were trying to purchase this building were that we were going to enlarge the building. And that would allow us to create an apartment in the basement of the building, which was both large enough and had high enough ceilings for that to be a realistic possibility. And we would extend the rear of the second, third, and fourth floors towards the back of the lot. And that would ultimately allow the second floor to have two apartments instead of one. And it would provide, when all was said and done, a very large two-story apartment, which I think was over 3,000 square feet. And that would be where my, where my family lived. And, you know, what we what we didn't end up with in backyards because we were in an attached building downtown, the proposed enlarged design for that building had, uh, had a roof terrace that was something like 20 feet deep by 40 feet wide. And so that would have been beautiful and overlooked the Hudson River, no less. That's the post-renovation version of things. And so the red roll then gets increased with um, the basement apartment. And it gets increased with the second apartment on the second floor. But, of course, the mortgage is increased by the amount of the renovation costs and that sort of the structure of the 203K loan. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. By the way, stop me if this is getting boring. No, I love it. I, I love it. It makes okay. perfect sense. So so you're buying a building. You're going to renovate it. You're going to add more units. You're going to increase your rental income. And you're, you're going to have a little bit more debt, but the rental income is going to cover that. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but essentially you're, you're living almost for free here at some point. Well, yeah. So that's actually – and it's funny because – Wow, this is really bringing back some painful memories. Thanks. Uh, uh, so I, I, I distinctly remember at the time, basically what you're saying is correct. So if we, if we just buy the building and then for whatever reason just sit on our renovation plans, don't execute, then we're sort of out of pocket by something on the order of 800 to $1,000 a month. But after the renovation were complete and we had endured that whole, you know, year, two years of construction and other, you know, it was going to be difficult, obviously. Then the post-renovation condition essentially meant that we had this 3,000 square foot plus apartment and the taxes and mortgage were fully covered by the rent roll. So as long as the building was 100% occupied in the lower floors, all of the units were occupied, essentially our house was freed up. and then whatever money we would have spent on, on a mortgage or rent was just going to the bank. Let's just be clear, too. You're talking about renovating an existing place, not tearing it down and rebuilding it, in an existing downtown without assuming you need a whole ton of extra parking and basically making use of, of the existing stuff that's there. That You're going in and you are the incremental developer here. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And while we're on the point, I will just tip my hat to the village of Dobbs Ferry, New York. They have a very, very uh, progressive and well-informed code for the properties in their downtown core that basically allowed for the bulk or the form of, of the enlargement and provided a way that if you could not provide the parking on site, that you could essentially contribute to a, a fund, you know, a payment in lieu, essentially, that would fund a public parking lot that was being planned for the next 10 years, such that every time an incremental development happened, they would collect some amount of money and it would cover the cost of constructing a parking structure somewhere in, in downtown in the next 10 years. Our good friend, Patty Steinschneider, is obviously unsurprisingly very involved in his the town's zoning and land use, was the one who originally explained to me what the rules were and that that kind of enlargement was encouraged by his town and by its code. Sure enough, I mean, I, this story spans about a year of trying to get a mortgage, and it spans only about six to eight weeks before we had all the permits we needed, and the town was completely accommodating. So um, I, I don't doubt, actually, having been through that process, I actually don't doubt that that town is bound for even more success, which will ultimately mean that I would have made even more money on owning that building. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so... We're going into the twilight zone, We're going to get a mortgage. I couldn't explain why, but the first bank my wife ended up speaking with was Bank of America. Maybe they had the lowest rate. Maybe they had the best website. I don't know. But um, we're, we were immediately met with nothing but yeses and pre-approvals. They're looking at the numbers. An actual human being is looking at the numbers, looking at our income. They're looking at uh, how much the building costs to buy. They're basically saying, I got, there's no way this isn't happening for you. I will say that some of this matter of getting a construction cost estimate for the renovation and then doing this sort of before and after appraisal stuff, it was very murky, by which I mean, like, I, I had phone calls with the construction cost guy where he basically told me he'd send me his spreadsheet and I could fill in whatever I wanted. <laughs> very, very right. shady stuff. No, I've been and there. Was, yeah. <laughs> he was a uh, he was a third party that somehow had to deal with the banks, and he just he stood to make like eleven hundred dollars off this transaction going through, and he was going to do whatever it took. But anyway, um, you know, nothing nothing but green lights early on. I still remember we were actually at the CNU in Buffalo, which is probably around May or June of two thousand and fourteen, when I got this very strange phone call from a woman at a call center in Texas, and. Um, the first thing she said to me was, is this a mixed-use building? I said, yes. She said, so there are stores in the ground floor. I said, yes. And her next statement sort of blew my mind was, is that type of thing normal in that region? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember being with you either when this call came in or shortly thereafter. And I remember the astonishment, too. Like, have you been to New York? <laughs> No, yeah. Well, I mean, and this is just a nice little small town north of New York. Right. I, don't, I, I think part of the problem for me is that anytime I'm handed a document that's all about one building or one property somewhere, my sort of uh, yeah. knee-jerk reaction is to look it up on Google Street. Right. You're a Google guy. Yep. So right. I don't know why this – yeah. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a strange question to be asked. But actually, I mean, she wasn't saying that because um, she wasn't going to give me the loan. She was saying that because she was struggling – to find an appraiser. I think she had a long 
list of appraisers in different locales, but they all did residential appraisals. And this was somehow going to be so much more complex, though I don't really believe that's true. We keep getting promised that this Bank of America mortgage, you know, we're on track, we're on track, we're on track. And then slowly but surely, the mortgage broker at Bank of America is not calling us back. And then finally, he just tells us that our, our loan application has been canceled. And when we ask why, he was very evasive. He basically said something along the lines of that the bank had canceled our application, but that he didn't know why. And that that goes back to what's sort of a recurring theme in this story, which was that there, there are people essentially at the local level who you're meeting with or who are helping you, you know, fill out forms and collect data, tax returns, uh, whatever it is who then sort of feed all this information into a system, and that system spits back like either a yes or a no or an approval or a cancellation, and they essentially have no idea why. Now, I'll, I'll save it for a little later in this story, but I actually learned, I learned why the Bank of America application was canceled later. But needless to say, now I'm something like 12 weeks into the process. You've got $15,000 down. I've got $15,000 on the line. I'm trying to get an appraiser and an inspector out there, but I guess um, the bank didn't want to do either of those two things until we had the financing secured. There's also, I think there's a deadline somewhere in the original purchase contract with the seller that stipulates a date by which the financing is supposed to be secured or we're parting ways. And so I think at some point we'd ask for an extra few weeks. Now we're sort of back to square one. Back to your wife looking for mortgage companies. Right. So um, I do something that I probably should have done from, from the get-go, which was I reached out to a few friends. And in fact, I had one friend that I, I didn't realize this. I have one friend who had bought an older home, and he had done one of these uh, loans that involves renovation costs at a much lower level. It was something like uh, maybe 20%, maybe like, you know, a $100,000 home with a $120,000 renovation included budget. Um, So he had actually worked with a broker that he had been very satisfied with. And this is at Wells Fargo now. So I get hooked up with this guy. And he he was, he was a real nice guy. He obviously worked on commission, but that's fine, you know, because the incentives were aligned and he was a hustler and he was much better about returning phone calls and much more knowledgeable about the system than the guy at Bank of America. So I was pleased. It seemed like things were going to be fast track. And of course, You couldn't ask me for a document anywhere in my life at that point that I didn't have on hand because I've been answering questions from another bank for the last month. Okay. Now we get into some of the stuff that I'll leave it to the audience to decide whether or not it's Ian doesn't know the system well enough and got himself in too deep or the system is, you know, dysfunctional because very quickly having all the information in hand the guy from Wells Fargo says, the numbers aren't panning out. I'm not going to be able to get you this mortgage, at least not for the purchase price plus renovation. I might be able to get you the mortgage, but only for the purchase price. And there are a series of, I have them written down here. There's like five reasons that he explained that my financial picture, as I was drawing it for him, were not helping me. Essentially, I was looking bad on paper. At the start, with the you know the 1.67 debt-to-income ratio, we thought we were okay. 
All right. So the first thing was that because we placed the offer in February of 2014, we had delayed filing our taxes for the preceding year, which would have been filed in March or April, because I was trying to hold on to some cash so that I could get to the closing. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I want to say my my income was probably something like 15 or 20% lower the year before, and my wife's income was probably like 10% lower. So fine. The the, the, the family income of 170000 is more like 140000 150000 that doesn't help. So now we're now we're at like a 2.0 debt to income ratio. The next thing was, here's one I didn't I didn't know. I don't know if you know it. I had owned the apartment in Forest Hills where I had lived the last time I saw you. I had subsequently moved out of that apartment into something a little larger, and I rented out the apartment I owned to my brother-in-law and his then girlfriend, now wife. I'm not exactly sure how or why it came out, but when my wife was talking to the mortgage broker and they were sort of constructing this list of income and expenses that the Rasmussen family has on a recurring basis each month, it comes out that the person who rents the apartment from us yeah. is my brother, my, uh, my brother-in-law. My, oh, my wife's brother. okay. Sure, sure. So they re- they refuse they refuse or cannot, I don't know, they will not consider that income. Different last name, but because of the familial relationship, they said, no, that's not income. So, yeah, I, I got I you. Mean, okay. I understand this in some ways. I guess I don't in others. But the problem was that the rent he paid me almost covered the entirety of the um, mortgage plus building maintenance fees for that apartment. So let's say it's something like fifteen hundred a month all in to be the owner of that apartment, and he's paying me thirteen or fourteen hundred. Right, right. And I've got this. I've got another apartment now that I don't own. I'm just renting it three blocks away. Sure. But now on paper, I've got the rental of the apartment three blocks away, the mortgage <laughs> right. of the apartment I own with no and the income. Of the right. No income. Right. To, no income to speak of there. Right. I got to tell you, that looks absolutely terrible. Right. Yeah, I see that. Um, yep. Now, for those who are listening who are coming up with ways they might have rebutted this idea that the, the that the rent from the brother-in-law wouldn't be accepted, we tried everything. My mother-in-law, who's my brother-in-law's mother, had personally guaranteed that he would pay us when we agreed to give him the apartment. I could have gotten a guarantor. Um, my brother-in-law had paid me on time for the preceding year, and I could have readily provided bank statements that showed that on the first of each month, he deposits the money. They wouldn't accept any of that. We even volunteered to get a new, so less than authentic lease prepared where the girlfriend would be the only signer. And then we'd also provide all the back, the back uh, rent payment info from the bank. Right, right. To, they wouldn't take any of it. So they, they weren't working with you on that. No. Yep. So they're not, they're not going to accept it. Anyway. But that's a major setback because now I look like a guy who lives in one apartment and just keeps another really nice apartment totally empty. Right, right. Yep. So that's sort of ridiculous. <laughs> um, the second thing I'll tell you is that my wife and I also own a summer house. 
And the only reason we can afford a summer house is because we rent it out on a regular basis. And that's the magic of Airbnb. Um, or what's, I forget the other one, uh, v, v, VRBO, Vacation Rentals by Owner, which does longer term rentals. So for instance, I could tell you that in the year 2015, we rented our house, I believe, for the entire month of August. And then we rented it for, you know, weeks or weekends here and there throughout the rest of the year. And that effectively covered all the mortgage payments for that house. Right. Yeah. And, and that doesn't count either, you're saying. No. So, I, and by the way, I strongly encourage everyone who's listening to go find a reasonably cheap house in a nice, cute summer town. Start renting it out. You'll cover the rent. You'll cover your mortgage payments in Airbnbs if you know what you're doing. Um, but none of that income could be counted because I did not have a tenant with a lease. Right. Right. Yeah. We volunteered. I mean, of course, Airbnb and VR, VRB, all these websites maintain a detailed record, and I could show you know, essentially a corresponding uh, bank statements that showed that I'd received all this income. And so and I think this had also been true in 2014 that we'd covered the mortgage with the rental income. So I could show that I was able to consistently rent the house such that I didn't have to pay the mortgage on, on the summer house. They don't want to see that. They don't care. So now I own a summer house that I leave empty all year and an apartment that I leave empty all year in addition <laughs> to which I rent an apartment. Wasn't that apartment you were renting like 400 square feet too with the infant and all that? Oh, oh, I'll get to that, man. This this story, we're st we're still in the part of the story where I was perfectly happy. Um, okay, yeah. So I should also mention, by the way, yeah, you might get to. Uh, I, there's at least a part of me that was thinking at the time. I don't. Why? Why does a? You know, they're they're counting these home ownerships against me. In my mind, I'm a person who has a lot of equity in other property. Right, right, yeah. So yeah. if and, and I'm and I'm telling them that the Dobbs Ferry building is going to become my primary residence. Right. So I mean, at least to my mind, you know, if if something went wrong and my wife lost her job or we lost tenants in the Dobbs Ferry building and we couldn't cover it. It stands to reason to me that we would then either take a home equity loan or sell one of the other properties, and then we'd have all this equity from which to draw on to get us to get us through whatever rough patch until we either were you know somebody was able to employ themselves again, or even if we had to sell the Dobbs Ferry building, we, we would have a runway to do that. Right. Right. Yep. Um, all right. So next detail up was I had at the time. I rented office space in Forest Hills and a part of the renovation plan for the building in Dobbs Ferry was to include an office of about 500 square feet for me, which, which was even larger than the office I had. So the office I had in Forest Hills, I was paying somewhere on the order of $1,200 a month. And now I was going to not have to pay that. Right, right. Yeah. So I explained that I explained that to them. I said you could look at my business records. You can see that I pay rent on an office in the city right now. That expense is essentially going to be gone, and so I, I'd like you to actually count that towards my income. Right. They wouldn't do that. No, <laughs> no fly. Right. So it seems reasonable. I, I, I again, I leave it to you. I leave it to you, the listeners, to decide for yourself if you think I'm making sense. They weren't going to hear that. Um, last but not least was like I said, there were two retail stores in the ground floor of the mixed-use building in Dallas Ferry. One of them was occupied. We had a lease with that tenant, and actually, in the course of this year, I actually met with them and negotiated for them that they would stay. 
because um, they were they, they were nice people, and I was generally supportive of the not for profit, and th- and that was sort of like one guaranteed tenant from the start. Um, so so I could essentially pull the I could pull their lease, hand that to the bank, and I could claim that as potential income for the building. But here's where it gets sort of really weird. The second retail space, which was the larger of the two, was essentially going to be renovated. It was going to get, uh, you know, a new floor and kind of white box walls, and then that was going to be put on the open market. Now, the not-for-profit in the one store, they were probably paying less than market. I'm fully convinced that given a large blank retail space in this downtown, we could have gotten a good deal of money, you know, thousands of dollars a month. The bank told us that they cannot consider income from the commercial units unless we had a lease in place. Okay. Okay. And I'm looking at them. I'm saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to clean out the space, prepare it to be marketed, and identify a tenant before I buy it. But I can't see, I, I don't see in what universe I would ever fail to do those things once I owned it. And so much strangely, they were perfectly willing to consider, to estimate the rental income from the residential units in the building. And I don't totally understand that. But Yeah, that seems like a little riskier than the commercial, given you were in a, a commercial strip that was doing well, you know, in a yeah, commercial downtown. So- right. In essence, if you didn't count any of the rent my brother-in-law paid me for the apartment he lived in, you didn't count any of the rental income I derived on the summer property, you didn't count all the money I would save by not having to have an office in a different location, and you didn't count the larger of the two retail rents in the in the rental. It's a disaster. I mean, it's not a disaster, but it's... It's not It's not enough. Right. Yeah, you're impoverished. You're destitute. You don't qualify, Ian. No, I mean, I just look like a guy who's got entirely too many financial obligations to take on this building. I'll just, I'll try and fast forward things. We're working with the bank of, uh, we're working with the, uh, the Wells Fargo guy, and these numbers are not working out. I think what ultimately happened was we were trying to reshuffle things so that certain incomes would or wouldn't be counted. There was talk of like even finding like a local retail shop that would sign a prospective lease at a discount so that we could get them included. And then around Labor Day of that year, so something like six, six and a half months into this, by the way, the seller is totally upset about this. And she happened to be an older woman with limited English language skills. And so she was sort of not fully informed about what was going on. She, she was having trouble speaking with her attorney and her attorney and my attorney weren't getting along. Everybody was upset. Eventually the Wells Fargo guy says to me, I can't get your loan approved. All of a sudden it's like de- deja vu back to what the bank of America guy said. Yeah. This isn't going to happen. Except the, yeah. But yeah. the Wells Fargo guy, he was a little smarter and he refused after the system, like basically automatically canceled out the loan three times in a row. He refused to sort of leave it at that because I kept asking him why, and he wanted to know why because he thought he had a good application. And what we subsequently found out was that if the building has, I want to say, more than four units, you're automatically ineligible for the 203K loan, 
regardless regardless of the proportions of floor area. So you can't have a building that's predominantly commercial and just has a token amount of residential occupancy to call it, you know, a residential Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. I believe the, the split is something like two-thirds or three-quarters. I forget the number. We'd actually had to tweak our building plans in order to hit that number. CNU has actually been involved in getting that getting that number adjusted to be more friendly to these types of projects. And uh, I, very, I very much applaud them for that. But what we didn't know is that there was, and none of the bankers we'd spoken to at that point knew that um, there's this rule. If you're going to do more than four units, you're just, you're out of the 203K system. Because then it just looks like this is a for-profit venture, which, you know, in many ways it was. Uh, <laughs> So that guy tells me I'm dead on arrival. I'm basically back to square one, and he doesn't think he'll he'll be able to get me the loan. At this point, we're sort of panicking. Where the, the whole deal is about to fall through. At which point, my my good friend and architect Patty said, "Have you considered reaching out to a local bank?" And he he knew of one that he'd had another project he'd worked on where he'd met some people at a bank just one or two towns north of there good down-to-earth people, a lot of local connections. So we made, a, we made a, date, a date to go in and meet with them. And it was, what a breath of fresh air. I mean, we told them the address of the building. We described where it's located. Everyone around the table, from the, from the head of commercial mortgages to the president of the bank, they all know the building. They've all walked down that street. Everybody seems very, very supportive. Okay. But, okay. but, but. Two, two big buts. First of all, they tell us up front, that there's no way they're going to be able to do it as a residential loan. It would have to be a commercial loan, yep. which substantially alters things because you're supposed to come to the table with 30% down. Right. If they can't do it as residential, there's no secondary market for it as residential. They've got to find something where they can pass it off onto a secondary market. So it's got to be commercial. And now, yeah, you've got to have equity. My understanding is that they intended to hold the loan themselves. Oh, okay. But so they, they wanted the buffer, the protection. Right. So you got to come with equity. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Except, you know, well, I, I ask you all, how many of you were prepared to put down one third when right. you bought your right. real house? Right. 30,000. You you have to put $90,000 down. Right. Instead of 15,000. Right. Right. And, and by the way, as the story goes, I tried to do it and I might've, I might've made it by like, you know, borrowing money, insisting that all of my clients pay up, all this stuff. But anyway, that's the first thing is that it was going to be 30%. Now, the second caveat, and the the seasoned developers in the audience are going to say, why the heck didn't he mention the sooner the story? But the empty retail space that had been operated by the owner of the building had been for many years a dry cleaner. Oh, no. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. you got to do an environmental review on it, right? Hold on a second. Okay. Yes, I do. That's what they that's what they asked for. Yeah. But just to be clear, first of all, there are three other dry cleaners in this downtown. Much as there are three dry cleaners in the downtown of the town where I live now. And so, although I understand there, the concerns that relate to certain chemicals, the, the world is going to have to confront the problem it has with dry cleaners being located in every single town. That being said, I was aware of this issue from the get-go, and I had actually gone ahead out of pocket without either of either Bank of America or Wells Fargo asking me to, 
I had actually gone ahead and had tests performed because I didn't want to buy a building and create an apartment in the basement of a building that had, you know, chemicals had seeped into the ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So, so by the way, very interestingly, and I, I just said it, but to repeat, neither Bank of America nor Wells Fargo asked for any environmental review at all, even after I told them what the prior use was. And I asked them to please confirm that they were not going to ask me at the 11th hour to perform the environmental test. They both said, doesn't matter. Because I guess in the 203K system... That wasn't one of the blanks they needed to fill in. Yeah, they weren't going to hold that mortgage, so what the heck? No, yeah, they just, right. They just needed to make the form make sense, and then they were going to get their commission. But the um, the local bank, my my wife said very directly to these people at our first meeting. She said, "We've performed a series of tests to confirm to our satisfaction that the building is safe to live in." but we have not performed a full environmental review. And that is a perfectly accurate description of what we had done. Um, I actually have uh, a client, colleague, close friend who's in the business of environmental review. He had done a phase one test, which essentially identified what we already knew, which is that at one point in time there was a dry cleaner in the building that potentially used contaminants. And then rather than perform sort of the full range of environmental tests, we had done a series of air quality tests that are specific to dry cleaning. They'd essentially put canisters in the cellar of the Dobbs Ferry building and um, over a course of days measured the presence of certain chemicals. And they were essentially all below the level at which they are considered a danger to health or at a level that necessitates remediation by law. But you're not the certified environmental review testing guy who has to sign off on no. that, right? Yeah. No, I'm not. But but again, and I, I suppose I'm unusual in that way, that I walk into a bank and on day one, I've already got not the environmental test they're going to ask for. I've got the ones I've already done and I'm telling them to take it or leave it. Right. You're doing the due diligence because you're going to own the building. You and know, live in it. And live in it. Right. 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 Okay. That makes perfect sense. So sure enough, um, they come back and they say, our board of directors discussed your potential commercial mortgage and all of our mortgages that require environmental review all get done by the following three environmental review firms. I tell them I'm absolutely not going to reperform the environmental review. And we work out a deal whereby I'm going to pay. It was several thousand dollars. Um, I was going to pay for their environmental review firm to review the work that my environmental review firm had done. And that was just going to be what we had to do to get this deal done. And sure enough, the conclusion on the part of their environmental review guys was that although the levels of contaminants were neither at the threshold for danger to human health nor at the threshold of remediation by law, that there had been some level of contaminants found and that what they wanted was basically a full uh, phase to it, which was described to me as they wanted to bring a set of machines either into the basement of the building or into the sidewalk in front of the building and drill down something on the order of 25 or 30 feet underground and take samples. Yeah. They want to do a phase two. 
Yeah, which is orders of magnitude larger in terms of scope and cost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, so you're looking at a, a building that a building of three hundred thousand dollars, and the tests were something on the order of twenty-five to thirty thousand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've seen that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but I'm not going to spend another. 10% of the purchase price just effectively proving that something I already found out is not really there is not really there. And you have to put an extra, you know, 20% down and you're going to live there. So it's, it's not like yes. you, it's not like you don't have skin in the game, you know, from all the different viewpoints. Yeah, I hear you. No, and it, it gets worse in that, uh, as my environmental review colleague explained to me, if you dig down... 30 feet underground in a relatively poor soil in a mixed-use downtown, you're probably going to pick up something, whether or, not it, whether or not it comes from your property. And on the off chance that we had paid all of this money to have these tests done and gotten a positive hit, then the remediation costs could have essentially been on the same order of magnitude as buying the building altogether. Right, right. And... That becomes the final straw, and you have to walk away from this thing. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a heartbreaking it's a heartbreaking moment. I mean, it's not something it's not something I ever wish to do again because you essentially have to unravel all of the relationships you have with the banks and the consultants. Obviously, Patty as my architect and my environmental review person, and and I've got three people at the bank, everybody involved needs to be told that this is not going anywhere and it's officially over. And then, of course, the seller has to be told. Right. And you lose your deposit, right? Well, we, yes, except for the fact that we then basically say we never got financing, that the agreement stipulates that we're only in contract if we are able to get the financing and that we're demanding a full refund. And that ultimately leads to a threat of litigation and a settlement. So, I, got, I think I got something like half of my money back. You know, all in all, if you've been, you know, keeping tabs of every single dollar spent and thing that I said I did in pursuit of this uh, building, um, it's tens of thousands of dollars right. lost. And this is delightful because you've got a, an infant at home. I know at some point here you wound up in anticipation of closing, I think, or something like that. You, didn't you wind up, like, getting out of your apartment? Yes. So, I mean, it, and, you know, if you want to talk about sort of a hectic time of life, this is around Halloween during 2014. My landlord had asked us if we were going to stay another year, and the lease the lease was uh, set to renew or not on September 1st. We had told him our plans, the move, but we'd asked him if we could then have, you know, until October 1st. At that point, we're meeting with the, the, the deal with Wells Fargo falls apart, but the deal with the local bank appears to save the day. We ask him for the extension of another month. At some point, at the end of September, the beginning of October, he asked us to confirm once and for all that we're going to be out by November 1st because he understands that he's got to get in there, do a little bit of uh, you know fixing up, and then show the apartment to the next set of prospective tenants. Right, right. So he needs you to move on. At this on. point, yeah. So when he's asking me that question, I'm supposed to have a closing date within the next week or two. And so I agree that I'll be out in, you know, five weeks later on November 1st. So it, it turns out that the only apartment that we can find on a short-term basis that is anything but um, highway robbery, because if you if you ever try and shop for a short-term rental, they basically tack on 30 or 40%. 
Uh, the only place we can find is actually a studio apartment in our old building, which was a hotel from the year 1910. This was your brother-in-law's former apartment, right? Yes. Adding insult to injury. <laughs> I was in there when it was just him. It's basically like right. the size of a queen bed with like two feet on each side. <laughs> That's that's fair. I believe the entire unit's 150 square feet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, adding insult to injury, the I, I'm I'm now moving with my wife, my child, and two cats into the 150 square foot apartment where my brother-in-law had lived when he first moved to New York, and he's living in my former apartment, which is a much more generous two-story, 700 square feet. And by the way, in order to make this all happen, we're moving all of our stuff into storage. This is like uh, contemporaneous with finding out that we're going to be losing all of this money, that we're not getting our deposit back, that we're not moving into the, the house. And of course, from February to November, we've developed, uh, you know, a, a great amount of like emotional. Right. All these plans uh, and dreams. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got I've got the approvals from the village, and I've got right. uh, Patty's beautiful plans. I've now been to the building on three or four occasions. You're imagining the the patio on the roof that you're like, oh, you know, I I remember talking to you, and and you were describing how wonderful it was going to be. Yep. Uh, by, and by the way, uh, another thing I learned from this experience when when I then buy the house that I'm living in now, I didn't tell anybody I was buying it. <laughs> I think I told my my bet my my closest two or three friends I clo I told them that, that I was moving here about a week before the closing um, because I then I then because this process was so long and so you know it was so worthy of being talked about everywhere I went with all these crazy stories that everybody I knew was sort of aware that this drama was unfolding and so when it didn't work out I then had to tell every one of them the whole story right. So you're in an apartment and you, you got to find a new place and Dobbs Ferry is not working out. W what did work out then? So here comes the second half of the story, which shouldn't take more than a couple minutes. My wife and I start driving around. Our criteria for places to live was very simple. It was that you had to be able to take a train to commute to Manhattan and that that ride had to be 40 minutes or less. You had to have a town where you could walk or bike to most of your daily needs, good school system, and it couldn't be in New Jersey. Okay. No offense. No <laughs> offense. No offense to the. I just. I'm. I'm just not going to do it. Mostly because of the traffic. There, it turns out there's only something like ten towns. Dobbs Ferry being one of them. There's only about ten towns that genuinely fit the description I just gave, which is sort of amazing in and of itself that that would be true. You know, uh, a handful of those I don't want to live in, a handful of those I could not afford to live in. Dobbs Ferry, obviously, I've just been burned. I'm sort of, uh, I'm really not interested in shopping for other homes in that town. I'm sort of mentally can't even stand to go back to that place. And my wife and I end up identifying Port Washington as the town that we would like to live in. And I'm, I'm from Long Island. Port Washington is about 20 minutes from where I grew up, so I know the area pretty well. And I had some friends in this in this area when I was in high school. Got very lucky. I think it's the weekend before Thanksgiving. We go to see a few open houses. Uh, there was one house I was absolutely in love with. Traditional home, constructed in 1907. Sort of old-fashioned home, a lot of wood details. And it also had space in the house for my office. 
I think I went to four open houses that day. I was totally sure my wife, my wife and I would have different opinions about what we wanted, and we would sort of, you know, if we don't agree, we're sort of back to square one. But it turns out we agree on that we both like the same house. Tell me you qualify for a mortgage. So let me see. Like I said, I'm, I'm like basically playing with these numbers so as not to divulge to the entire universe exactly how much money I make or how much my house costs. But if the uh, if if the building in Dallas Ferry were, were three hundred thousand dollars, this would be about three hundred and seventy five thousand. Okay, so th- so this is a further stretch than what you were getting into, and no no rental income on this one. Right, right, right. And we had our offer accepted. I want to say something like November twenty first, because then we 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 fly out to Florida the very next day for Thanksgiving, and. I, I don't even remember applying for this mortgage, frankly. <laughs> right. I will I will say I was at a point where if you'd asked me for things like my prior tax returns or my bank statements or what I had them all. I had them all already pulled, put them in PDF with the proper file names because I'd been asked by several banks at this point. Right. So I could essentially, you know, you could fill I, out a mortgage application it, in two minutes. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's it's true that when we did get the the request for documents for the residential mortgage that we ultimately have, I think we emailed back everything in an hour. It was just that easy. It was that easy. But that so that means that we would have essentially uh, first applied for that mortgage at some point in the first couple of weeks of December, twenty fourteen. Closed on the house with absolutely zero issues. January 20th. Okay. <laughs> do they require a down payment? How did that work out? Um, yeah, we put down something something very similar to before. Yeah. Some, something under 5%. Okay. Okay. But no problem. Oh, I mean, like I said, I'm, it's, it's funny because this, this, uh, this whole conversation has really had me sort of like going back in my, my memories and pulling out of what was kind of a terrible year. Um, and even though I remember like a lot of the nonsense with trying to get the, the mixed use or the commercial mortgage, I, I couldn't even, I can hardly remember having to do anything. Uh, the one thing I do remember about the, the residential mortgage that to this day, I, I can't even totally understand it. Um, something like two or three days before the closing, so the closing is January 20th and this is like January 17th. The broker gets in touch with us and he tells us that even though we've signed all of the paperwork, like loan origination paperwork, that there, that mortgage rates have just gone down like some tiny amount such that we could have an even lower monthly payment and that he'll reprepare the paperwork and bring it to me to sign. So he literally, he drives to my office in Queens and meet me and has me re-sign a, se- a second set of documents so that he can give me an even lower interest rate. Wow. I don't know. I, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, obviously, he stood to gain somehow from that transaction because I don't know why a person would drive all the way from their office, which was like a half an hour away, would drive all the way over to see me just to have me sign these documents. I'd already basically agreed that I was going to take the loan from this bank. Right, right. But, I mean... Yeah. Just to put to put it in some perspective, I had this guy essentially falling all over me to give me an even better mortgage than I was asking for in about a month's time from beginning to end. 
whereas we had not been able to get a lesser loan on a building with rental income. And so today I live in a beautiful house that it, I will say it, it does um, it does include my office. So I, I don't I know I no longer spend money on on an office rental, but I don't have any retail tenants and I don't have any apartment tenants and. The, the out-of-pocket, I mean, it's sad to say, the, what I pay out-of-pocket on the house I have now is much, much more than I would have spent um, for the Dobbs Ferry property, you know, which conversely means that had we been successful in getting the Dobbs Ferry building, um, we would have made a lot of money. We would, have made, we would have made money every month, and then at some point in the future, we would have either sold the building for substantially more than we paid for it, or we would have... I'm, I'm sure there are some people who hear this story and say, yeah, you know, you're better off. You, you, you didn't know it at the time, but you're, you're probably really happy you have this, you know, single family home with a driveway and a garage now. Um, eh, I don't know. I, I do have a barbecue. I don't have a backyard and I do have a driveway, but I don't really care about that so much. I mean, I suppose it's nice when we go to the supermarket that I can pull the car into the driveway as opposed to having to carry the groceries up, up a few flights. But I mean, if I had grown to want those things, I probably would have gone and taken all the money I made off the rental income from the building and bought a house nearby. Sure. Right. And right. then I would have, I would have just owned this property that spun off thousands and tens of thousands of dollars a year. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not a completely happy ending, but I, I assure you, I'm very pleased with um, where I live now and, um, I'm I'm almost over it. Let me ask you one last question. You're on our board, obviously. You're you're involved with CNU for a long time. You you are an urbanist. You get what we're trying to do with cities. When you reflect on this experience, what what do you think that it says about the state of development in this country and and finance in this country and and the prospects for us kind of turning things around? Well, I can tell you that at the time it seemed to me that a lot of people were suggesting almost, almost that the system was designed to prevent me from accidentally getting involved in something that I wouldn't have wanted. There were people who I encountered along the way who thought that the idea that you would live in an apartment with your family above a store or two stores or two stores in an apartment. There were people who thought that that was actually really problematic. I hadn't considered how difficult it was going to be to maintain the building. I hadn't considered how much, how terrible it is to have to play landlord. I hadn't considered how badly I was going to want that backyard and that driveway. Generally, I mean, we, we, we met with just a lot of skepticism. There are people who sort of looked at us, even if they, even if they didn't know us well enough to think that they knew what we wanted, they, it seemed extremely unusual to people. I, I remember w- when we went in front of the uh, the village of Dobbs Ferry, I, Patty told me that some of the, you know, sort of talk around town was that nobody could understand why two young professionals from New York City would move up to Dobbs Ferry, not to move into a beautiful house surrounded by trees, but to just move into a building downtown that needed to be fixed up. I think we should point out at this point, you're not talking about Toledo or Omaha. You're talking about... New York, where there's kind of a culture of this. <laughs> this is not like some, you know, totally suburban place. This is a place that understands cities, right? No, that's absolutely right. And it, as a byproduct of that, it's also a place where, um, and it always sounds funny to say this, but there are others like us. There's countless families that are living in the city 
want to get out, whether or not it's because they want more space or they want the schools or they're just sort of sick of the hustle and bustle. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why it's easier to live in the suburbs or in a town when you have kids. There are a lot of others like us who would probably like to pursue the same thing. Like I said, um, all, all the credit in the world to the village of Dobbs Ferry, who seems to welcome this, at least as a matter of land use and zoning. But it does seem sort of tragic. For any given town, it would only take, I don't know, 25 or 50 couples like my wife and I who pick up a building, fix it up, and bring it back to life. I mean, if you had 25 or 50 of those happen in any given small town, um, it would probably make a world of positive difference. Absolutely transformative. Right, right. Totally. And we had, we had sort of suspected that we might be the first in a series of people to do things like that. And I think there have been, a, there have been at least a handful of people who have had better luck than us. Looking back, uh, you know, the amount of money we had and the amount of money the building cost and the way that, you know, the lending rules came up against us, I, I don't doubt for a minute that we would have been able to afford the building. So it's sort of, sort of uh, their loss. So. Right. Ian, I know that was painful. Thank you for taking the time to relive it and share it with us. I, I had gotten pieces of that from conversations with you over time, but it was, it was good for me to hear it. You know something? I think it was um, cathartic and perhaps even therapeutic to get it out of my system. It's the first time I've told it from beginning to end, and so it's been a real it's a postmortem. But I, I mean. Uh, it's sad to say that it's, uh, you know, aside from offering some insight into a system that's broken, it's, it's actually a cautionary tale. And I could even understand why it might um, dissuade some people from trying to get involved in something like this. But um, well, I wish everyone the best of luck who yeah. pursues a development like this. I mean, at the end of the day, I would really like to see the lending practices change because, I mean, like you say, Dobbs Ferry, great. They can do everything under the sun to facilitate the kind of development they want. But when the lending system says, hey, we don't we don't have a place for this, e even though there's a there's a ton of financial logic to it, that ruins the best plans you could ever make. Yeah. Like I, like I said, in, in many ways, I wish it had worked out differently, but um, I probably will not try it again. All right, my friend. I'm going to come stay with you at your new place soon. You're going to love it. Okay. Thanks so much for it's taking an, the it's, time. It's an urban lifestyle at the scale of a small town. It's been my pleasure, Chuck. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, take care, friend. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a start. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.